Hey everyone, La from TGL. Just finished another episode of the Back and Forth podcast, a ping pong chat about logistics. This episode we feature Pete Mento, an ex-colleague and friend of mine. Um, he's currently the head of commercial for Wayfair, a US-based publicly traded company that deals in the big and bulkier items uh, for their customers. A super interesting business model. A bit more about Pete himself. He is an ex-merchant marine officer. Um, a very colorful character. He loves his rugby and he loves his beer. Him and I have had many pints of beers together in pubs where he was actively seeking to have a pub fight. All in good humor. So Pete is probably one of the most intelligent uh, freight nerds I have come across in this industry. Uh, he always has a lot to say about some of the most important subject matters, but not in a mundane, boring way. He's a colorful individual, as you will see. Um, I try to cover a wide, a wide variety of uh, topics, and I failed miserably. But what we did manage to cover, uh, Pete brought a lot of color and personality and insight, and most importantly. I only wish that I had digged a little bit deeper into some of the subjects that we discussed. Invariably, when, when you have such a banter going on, you start shooting off different tangents and, and that chewed up a lot of time. But nonetheless, what we did have at the end was brilliant uh, because, you know, anytime I talk to Pete, I always learn something and I always uh, come out with a massive grin on my face because he's just that entertaining. So I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. See you on the next one. You are listening to Back and Forth, Ping Pong Chat About Logistics. Brought to you by TGL, Think Global Logistics. I want to welcome everyone to the next TGL podcast, Back and Forth, um, a Ping Pong Chat About Logistics. Today, I have a very old friend and ex-colleague of mine, Pete Mento, um, who I used to work with at CH Robinson. And my first encounter with Pete um, was, I believe, at one of our global conferences. Um, I believe this was at Minneapolis, um, the Twin Cities. And, um, and in true fashion, you know, traditionally, we, we start our first day and then we go and uh, in the evening, we'll go and celebrate or drink and everyone usually gets quite, quite messy. And of course, it's a 7.30 a.m. start the next day. Um, and then you go through these mundane PowerPoint presentations or whatever you want to call it. Um, so suffice to say, everybody was quite um, under the weather by, the, uh, by day two. And I recall Pete's session came up at about, I think it was just after lunch, about 1 or 1.30. And in comes Burley Pete, you know, like his, his thumb is probably thicker than my arms. <laughs> and he came in. Well, everyone was really red-eyed and um, under the weather, and it started talking. And sure enough, within the first five minutes of his spill, everybody was sort of prepped up and listening. And and he went on, did maybe about I think it was about an hour worth of presentation. It's probably one of the most entertaining presentations, or let's just say conversations, that I have ever participated in. Um, and that was my first exposure to Pete. How someone could make a logistics presentation sounds so entertaining. Um, he was a magician at it. So I'm very, very happy to have you, Pete. And um, and and I really want to thank you for your time. And I know the time difference over there. You're in uh, uh, you're over in Boston, right? 
I am. Yeah. I, I appreciate that, man. I really do. Uh, you know, you, you, um, you, you got Mark Hong and I in Australia and Sydney, you picked us up. I'd spent a week and a half with him in Asia at that point. And, um, you know, Mark's from Minneapolis. He's, he's he's Korean heritage, you know, and he had been dragging me all over Asia. I was so tired of eating Chinese food. And, and I, I get to, I get to Sydney and we went out the day before we had a really good time out drinking beers and, um, Next day we go out, sales calls, all that good stuff. And I'm like, great, Australia, finally. And you're gonna have some real good uh, Australian food. And what do you do? You take me to this wretched Chinese restaurant for dinner. And it was every type of awful seafood imaginable. It was, it was I mean, you were picking fish out of the tank and uh, I never wanted to beat two men more in my life than that night. Uh, and you kept me there for hours, hours eating all this Chinese seafood in somewhere in Sydney. I was so mad at the two of you. I just wanted pies and, you know, and beers. And it was so disgusting. I recall the first pub I took you to was just the one at the rocks down the road. It was Fortune of War. The rocks, yeah. Yeah, and, uh, and you was just... And you were just so happy to be in an Australian pub. I was. Having I was, a yeah. pint of beer yeah. or a schooner of beer, you were so happy. <laughs> and and here yeah. I was, you know, trying to talk shop, and you just looked at me and you go, La, I just want to get drunk and get into a bar fight. And I'm like, I dude, do. this is not Crocodile <laughs> Dundee, man. This is... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just want to talk about rugby and drink beer, man. You don't yeah. understand. I, I, yeah, if you ask me one more question about customs, I'm going to start the bar fight with you. Yeah, yeah it was. We had such a good time. Yeah, it was, it was fun. The, the pie place you took me to—I can't remember the name of it. That Harry's. was by the army base, I think. Harry's. Oh, God, I have dreams about those pies. Oh, oh they were so good. They were so good. Oh. Well, you're welcome back yeah. to city anytime, Pete. Yeah, I I'm looking forward to it. My um my my youngest son is playing Division One rugby in America now. He is a massive beast of a boy. He is six foot five. He weighs two hundred and seventy pounds. He's wow. He's playing Division One college rugby. He's he's incredibly good, and uh, he wants to come play in Australia. And I said, you can go play anytime you want. Just take me with you, buddy. I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna put on. I'm going to put on 50 kilograms of beer fat and watch you play, pal. I'm all well, in. Yeah. We don't get many six foot four rugby players, full stop. Yeah. You know that, don't you? Uh, so if he comes uh, and plays, he's going to be a gigantic beast of a human. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he's like the biggest ape man you've ever seen, bud. Well, you're like the tallest Chinese man I've ever seen in my life. I, you're, it's like you and Yao Ming. I, I didn't even know, like, the first time I met you, I, this is our guy from Australia. Like he's a he's a super tall Chinese guy with an Australian accent. That doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, but there you were. Yeah. Well, I I appreciate you having me on, man. It's, uh, it's been yeah. way too long since we got it to has talk. it has it has been over a decade. And just for our listeners, um, Pete is very very active um, in with all things compliance, U.S. trade related. Um, macro, geopolitics, all that. So all wrapped into one. Um, and he's very active on LinkedIn. Um, and I highly suggest everybody look him up and um, uh, look at some of the work he's put out and and, and follow him. So Pete, um, 
you are now at Wayfair. I know we just spoke previously before we pushed the record button, and um, and as I understood it, Wayfair is um, this e-commerce platform tackling an area which Amazon have not yet dared to go ventured forward with, which is the big and bulky stuff. Um, and and as soon as you said that, it, it would you know the penny drop and it and it made total sense. Um, I think I'm. Correct me if I've got this right or wrong, but that's what I, that's how I see it. You guys are the Amazon yeah. of um, bulk and ugly, I guess. Yeah, big and bulky. I mean, let's let's face it, right? There's a reason why those of us in the freight forwarding world would always quickly say no to personal shipments, right? You don't want the personal effects. Furniture breaks, home goods break. Uh, it is it's fashion. Um, so even the smallest nick, damage, ding, will ruin the value of the shipment. So uh, a lot of the stuff is also relatively inexpensive because it is considered a fashion merchandise. You buy it because you want to keep it for a short amount of time, change it over as people's tastes change. And then on top of that, you have the other side of the spectrum where it is horrifically expensive. And you're moving these very expensive things that are very heavy. A lot of times we have divisions of the company that are entering into people's homes to set things up. And you can imagine how complicated that is. So I'm in the side of our business. Um, it's a division of Wayfair called Castlegate Forwarding. We're a non-vessel operating common carrier. This year, we're going to move somewhere in the range of 140,000 40-foot ocean containers on behalf of just our suppliers. So although we we are a freight forwarder, we don't do it for anybody but our suppliers. The idea being that by lowering the transportation costs, we make it more profitable a sale on our platform. So we're not really in this to make a lot of money, which is great because it's not really competition for as like you, and it's not really a competition for the ocean carrier. It's really just us acting in the best interest of ourselves, our customers, and our suppliers, and trying to be as efficient and trying to come up with as, as many um, in, innovative ways of getting them into our system as possible so that our customer has the best experience, the most, uh, most cost-effective experience, and hopefully the fastest and the, the best way to get it there without any damages and have it available. The pandemic was brutal, absolutely brutal on inventories. And the fact that this was set up before that happened really put Wayfair in a great situation to be able to provide product for its customers. And it's funny, when we were first talking, you said, oh, I've never heard of Wayfair. And as an American, you know, I was like, you haven't heard of Wayfair, blah, blah. <laughs> uh, but, but I mean, and then, then I realized, wow, we're, we're not in Australia, you know? And then you and I had this conversation about, the geography of Australia, which you're positively correct. I mean, you're a coastal country. And the idea of, of doing what we do in Australia absolutely gives me night terrors. Trying to think about managing the logistics of what we do in your country would be a nightmare. So I'm glad that we're not there right now because this job is hard enough. Yeah. Well, you know, um, I've, we've I've, I've tried to touch it many many times and each time i fail miserably and um and it's just not something that's worthwhile um you you simply do not get the return on your dollar invested um more and more i try but again at the end of the day australia needs more population right the the problem here isn't that we're far away the problem here isn't the country's big the problem is we don't have enough people there's only 25 6 million of us uh covering a landmass not too dissimilar to the size of USA. Um, so without, you know, with that, you come from, um, 
through lack of infrastructure, lack of um, uh, satellite cities around the countries. You know, there's only a few. Um, and, um, and so, you know, I think when Amazon first launched in Australia, it took them many, many years to just get to the current stage of distribution with the small parcels. Um, and they didn't launch on time. Um, if memory serves me right, they didn't. They actually, um, the first couple of years of their um, um, planting their flag, they had a lot of dramas and it was not popular. Um, and I'm pretty sure even today with some of their packages where they're offering these cheap shipping prices, I'm pretty confident they're losing money. I just cannot see it, how wow. they can be making money. Um, so... Again, Pete, you know, welcome to Australia. Love to see you again. But again, come here with caution. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's funny you say there's just not enough Australians. It's the same thing with Canada. Well, it's the same thing all around the world. I, I, I used to say this at my speeches and people would say, shut up, like you're wrong. But the population, this idea of overpopulating the planet, it's just not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Okay. We're not making enough people. So like like Australia, I when I came back from Australia in the times that I've I've spoken to Australians in particular, I say, you're basically one big giant Texas with much better beaches. That's what Australia is. <laughs> like I, I grew I grew up in Texas, so Australians are these extremely friendly, outrageously warm people who are intensely proud of where they're from. I've I've met very 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 few people with a nationality who are as warm and inviting and at the same time willing to smack you if you say something negative about where they're from like you you can be you you can say as an Australian you can make fun of where you're from like you can you can be as anti-Australian as you want as an Australian but as an American, if I talked smack about Australia, you would all come out of the woodwork to break every bone in my body. And that's very Texan. It, it, you're, you're, and you're very funny, and you're, you're very big and bombastic, and uh, big personalities. Now let's get past the funny part of it. Massively rich in all kinds of, of raw materials. You know, huge export economy. Um, all kinds of great import opportunities that abound. You really desperately need more people because of the number of jobs that are there. Infrastructure um, problems abound. You, you have a lot of interior resources that you've got to bring to the exterior of the country. Sounds a lot like Texas. Uh, you have uh, tremendous problems with regards to your, your environment that make it a lot harder for you to deal with those interior issues. I, I can just keep going. But beyond all that, the Australian economy has always fascinated me in that there's so much to do, you just need more Australians. Which brings me to my second point, very attractive country. I don't know why you can't make more of you. You think like you guys can get around, you know, you, you, you just put on some romantic music, get a little tipsy and just make more Australians, right? This, you need some more romance in that country and just start knocking out Australians, man, I don't get it. Very attractive people. We're too busy drinking beers and starting, but we're too busy drinking beers and starting fights in pubs, mate. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Char charismatic, very charismatic, very charming people, 
I don't understand why you're not making more. It's like Canadians. I mean, the 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 world's population is, um, and you'll get back on economics. China has a three children policy now, where they're they're giving tax breaks to families that are willing to just make larger families because they're realizing our population is decreasing at an alarming rate. Women do not want to marry. They don't want to have more than one child. There are far too many men than women. They're not. They've never really allowed for an immigration policy. And they, they have certain cultural issues that make it difficult for them to have people who are not of Chinese descent marry people who are of Chinese descent. And they're not seeing people of older ages who've never considered marrying, having children deeper into their lives. So their population at 1.4 billion is probably gonna top out maybe at like 1.6. And then from there, slowly begin to decrease. India will likely be the world's most populous population. And then they too will begin to decrease because this idea of large agrarian families is not gonna happen. So Middle East, you know, Southeast Asia, certainly parts of, of South America, they'll have that same increase and then boom, they're gonna go down too. You know, the earth is not going to become oversaturated with human beings because technology is allowing us to not have these gigantic massive population centers. They'll, they will be centers of populations, but there will still be parts of the earth that will not be overrun with people. So that creates very interesting logistics problems of its, of its own. Um, who knows? We could have another, you know, another pandemic that will be worse than this last one. Yeah. Well, do you find that, you know, I've always said that um, looking at how it's, it's, it's great you, you sort of touched on technology and, um, and how that's transformed the way we live. Um, but more importantly, it's, it's given us a window into the rest of the world, right? Um, the, um, the, the freedom to travel or the cost of travel has significantly reduced. People are a lot more mobile than ever. Um, um, Instagrams of the world, the Facebooks of the world allows us to see and do what we want. So if you really think about it, you know, um, thinking back to my earlier decades, you know, um, like we didn't have that exposure. So you were somewhat still a bit more contained within your own country. But as the decades rolled on, more and more people becoming more and more international. And before you know it, by the time you hit 30, you still haven't got maybe, you know, you still want to hit another 20, 30 countries. So people have a lot more ambitious goals yeah. when it comes to their personal experiences. Um, or to become more worldly. And that is taxing on childbirth. <laughs> and yeah. so, you know, because we all become, let's face it, we've all become more selfish because we want to spend more time exploring and and live our lives, and rightly so. But then that the tax part of that is going to be, well, you're not going to have kids. Whereas before, my parents and the parents before that, they had nothing to do, right? <laughs> well, yeah, and it goes way beyond that. Like, so my, my grandfather, so my my father's father, you know, they're Italian immigrants, and uh, they came from Sicily. So, well, actually, my grandfather heard me say Italian, he'd be very angry. They're Sicilian immigrants, and they, uh, my grandfather was the youngest of thirteen kids. Thirteen, like, did my grandfather do anything but have sex and eat? Like, thirteen kids, man. Like, he worked. He ate and he had kids, right? And my poor great-grandmother. I mean, that's a lot of kids. And a big part of that was they, you know, they they operated their own business and you had to, he didn't hire labor, he made labor. That's pretty much where that came from, right? And then my mother, who was adopted and, and um, you know, she had a big family of her own, that 
she was, she, I believe she had 11 brothers and sisters when all was said and done through adoption and all the rest. It, it was common, you know, Texas, cattle, cattle ranchers. You just, you had to have kids, man. I mean, you know, you're, yeah. what are you going to do? You live out in the middle of nowhere. It's not like you can go on whatever, hire.com and say, I need some, some ranch hands. You got to knock them out. Right. So it was, it was just part of the way that the world works. And we look at ourselves now, kids are an expensive hobby, man. I mean, I got four of them and putting four kids through university in America, you're going to have to donate some kidneys to make that happen. So <laughs> it's, it's a, it's a trade-off, you know? And when you think about the cost of living in the part of the world in Asia or in the you know Pacific that, that you live in, Australia is a horrifically expensive place yes. to live, let alone raise a family. And we were talking about that before we started, you know, the, the cost of living in, in the Pacific, in Australia, New Zealand, uh, in Japan, Singapore, you know, you go, you go all through that part of the world, you're paying for that view, my man. You're paying for those beaches, you know. Yeah. There, there is, there, there's a lot of money that goes into that. And the logistics of getting things there on top of it, we should probably get to logistics. We're already like you know, 15 <laughs> minutes into this. Um, there, there's, a, there's a tax that goes into living in paradise. Uh, here in America, we have Hawaii. You know, um, I love going every time I can. But when you get there and you pay, you know, whatever, you, you pay $3 for a candy bar and, um, you know, a, a carton of milk to make your to make your cereal in the morning is almost $5 US. You say to yourself, yeah, it's paradise, but I'm gonna go broke in a week and a half if I stick around here. And I can remember when I was there in Australia, people had, people had less collateral crap in their life. And that was the function of realizing I don't need as much of this junk because I don't have as much to spend on it. Yeah. Um, and I think that might not necessarily be a bad thing. And, and the, the challenge of e-commerce in America right now is, is we are endlessly being told that we need things that we don't necessarily need. And we're making it way too easy to put it in people's hands, my friend. Way yeah. too easy. Yeah. Well, I mean, again, U.S., you know, every time I go to the U.S., I'm just astounded that each and every family has at least two cars. At least know? two cars. At, at least, least two cars. cars. Whereas in Australia, having two cars is a luxury, right? Like, oh, you've got two cars sort of thing, you know. So there's a difference and you've got what 50,000 different kind of peanut butter as well <laughs> oh isn't it great yeah but oh, but this wonderful. is why we need yeah. america because you guys are the biggest economy right <laughs> yeah because we're the world's single largest economy you would have to take the next five largest together to get a consumer economy the size of the united states if you yeah. took every single credit card in america and you and you stack them flat on top of each other they would go 38 miles into space Wow. If uh, Americans buy more crap that we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't like in the first place than any other country on planet Earth, roughly 21% of all consumer spending in America happens after our first major fall holiday, which is called Thanksgiving. So November, the last Friday in November until December 25th, Christmas Day. So 21% of our consumer spending happens in roughly a one-month period. And that's generally done uh, during our highest religious holiday that now most Americans don't believe is real. So we simply, we have this massive holiday built on excess. And, and I, you know, I was talking about this the other day, from a logistical standpoint, that one holiday, which we're about to enter into, you know, in, in this 
and it's, it's this massively disruptive logistics event that we call peak season, you know, um, on the, on the, the Asia side of logistics um, creates this export event where it's all hands on deck to have every single empty container we can find to stuff, to go into these ports, to load onto these vessels and get the hell out of Asia as fast as we can, right? And then on the US side of things, it's this event where we do everything we can to have every hand on deck to accept these vessels, load it in, and then have a cleared warehouse space, cleared rail space, and have everything ready to come into the country, turn that thing around and get the hell back out to get back into Asia because we have to get ready for Lunar New Year. I mean, it's just this never ending cycle where we're dependent on each other's moments of excess. Now we have Singles Day in China, 11-11, which is this, I mean, let's be very honest. It's a, it's a manufactured holiday where people, people are just sort of buying stuff for one another because they don't have someone in their life. And, and we're, we're buying things. The Chinese have, have God bless them, they've created, a, they've created a, a moment in time to just consume. Well, China, um, madness, do you agree man. that China now is probably more capitalist than communist? Oh, well, they have, man, they've, they've cracked the code, you know? I mean, yeah. for, for, for a bunch of communists, they've got this capitalist thing down pat, man. Like, they've, yeah. they've figured that stuff out, you know? Um, when I was a boy and I first started going to China, and, you know, you'd, you'd walk around Shanghai. It didn't look like Shanghai does now. No. It, it didn't. China didn't look like Shanghai does now, like, you know, you're a teenager walking around Shanghai and you're looking around. It, it was, there were, there were parts of the city, you know, there are parts of, of, of Guangzhou and, you know, parts of Shenzhen that, that looked, that looked like a major city. But now, I mean, these Chinese cities, they don't just rival Western, they surpass Western, like they're technological marvels that these, that these, these cities are. And the, the wealth that people have. You know, I remember my friend Brian Wolfram, who's over, he's at JCPenney now, and Brian's hysterical. Like, um, Brian calls himself the international party goer because he's, you know, he's, um, he, he's constantly traveling for vacations. I don't know where he gets all his vacation time. He loves Australia, by the way. Um, but he was over, he happened to be in Shanghai at the same time I was. I think he was negotiating rates. And we were both in Shanghai. And I said, let's go out tonight. And um, do you remember Jack Chang? Yeah, 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 Jack Chen. So, I just recently yeah, spoke Jack, to him as well. Yeah. Did you? Yeah. So yeah. Uh, Jack was over there too. And um, I think he was still living there for Robinson. And we all we all met and we had some drinks. And we were at some club late at night on a Saturday night. And it was mostly very young, very affluent Chinese people. And they were just dripping with money. Like, you know, the the $50,000 wristwatches and the next to impossible to find kicks and the, you know, the super expensive denim. And I mean, everything was like Gucci and Louis Vuitton and it was big money. And, you know, there I am just looking like an out of work high school gym teacher in my crappy clothes. You know, I never felt older and more irrelevant in my entire life. And just these, you know, super attractive, like really upwardly mobile young Chinese people who are like, who's this pointless old man? You know, I mean, and, 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 and I, I, I kind of just said to myself, I wonder where all this money came from. And then I remembered back when I was a kid going to China, these are probably either young tech millionaires, because a lot of them could be somebody who came up with a great piece of technology. 
they could be um, young business owners who caught on, you know, the tail end of a, a great business opportunity of growth industry. Um, they could just be fortunate young people whose parents made a crap ton of money. You never know, you know, but, but, but if I were to go to LA that same night or Manhattan or Chicago or Miami, I'd see the same thing. Or if I was in Paris or London or Milan, you know, I'd see the same thing. So the, the Chinese are in their own moment of, you know, beyond that bourgeoisie sort of, they're going to have to come to grips with the, that rising tide of wealth. And uh, I think it's going to be harder for them because in America, as an example, there's an expectation that every single generation below you is going to have an opportunity to do better than you did. And I don't know that China has that feeling. You know, I mean, in Australia, is it like that in Australia? Did, did, did your parents expect you to do better than they did? Um, well, I mean, I come from a Chinese family and, and Chinese mothers always expect you to be better <laughs> in everything, right? <laughs> so that goes without saying. Before I was born, I, was, I had expectations laid on this. <laughs> But what the thing is, it's very interesting is you, you speak of the younger generation. And I think um, a lot of these young folks, I mean, no doubt I'm, there, there'll be plenty that's going to be very well educated. You know, they're, they're going to be educated abroad. They're going to be, um, 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 you know, intelligent folks. But it's also this excess, I fear, that's going to do them, do a whole generation of young Chinese more harm than good. And I think if you look at some of the behavior of the Chinese government in terms of it silencing some of the, you know, the Jack Mars of the world, it's already sending a signal out saying, you can be wealthy, but don't flaunt it because we will cut you down, right? <laughs> and, <laughs> right? And because they don't want that to be spread because let's face it, right? I mean, now we're going to... You know, it's so hard today. I was thinking about what what we were going to talk about this thing, and and I was going to say, stick to logistics, don't touch politics. You know, and a few decades ago, it would have been an easier feat, but today, politics and every industry is just it's so much harder. It's, yeah, it's very difficult for you to comment yeah. on one thing without the other, right? It's just well, anyway. Me, so yeah, let me give you a let me give you a great example of that. So right now in America, our president is struggling with a big political problem. All right. And it's politics, but it's not politics. So his his really big problem right now has to do with these tariffs that America has put on Chinese goods. All right. So when it was first done, the reason for the Chinese trade war, and most people don't realize this, but the, the main reason for the U.S.-China trade war were all these tariffs. They're called 301 tariffs. It, it wasn't about trying to bring manufacturing back to America. All right. And, and it, it's not about trying to put a bunch of taxes on Chinese goods just to be baddies. It was about the theft of American intellectual property. That's what all of this was about. It was about America standing up to the idea that allegedly, allegedly, Chinese companies were, through, through the joint venture program, where most American companies have to work with a Chinese joint venture corporation. And while they're working together, whatever IP is developed during that joint venture the Chinese company has the right to use on their own. And a lot of that intellectual property ends up being spun off into individual Chinese companies without 
you know, there's nothing that American company can do at that point. And many times the, um, the sole intellectual property that the American company brings in that this Chinese company did not develop ends up being spun off and used, allegedly, right? So um, this happens with all companies, Australian companies, it happens with European companies, Japanese companies, Korean companies, and it, it causes a problem. So America, um, under the Trump administration, said enough's enough, we're standing up, we're doing something about this. And they put a series of tariffs in place. Some of them were onerous, 25% on key industries that came out of China. And the Chinese got upset, you know, no, really upset. But what was strange law, Americans didn't. Like, um, Americans, the, the typical American consumer didn't even notice like if, if you if you went down the street from my apartment right now and you stopped a hundred americans and you asked them you know what was the amount of tariff that president trump they'd be like man i got a i got a better chance of telling you you know what the atomic number of uranium is like they, they don't know like and they didn't even know why it happened and then on top of that if you ask most most noticeable like notable trade people in my world did you get hit with tariffs? They'd be like, oh, yeah, yeah, I did. Can you tell me what harmonized tariff code specifically your company got hit with? They'd be like, uh, nope. can I send an email tomorrow? Like, they wouldn't know specifically. So it, it's it's this kind of a thing where only, you know, deeply dyed in the wool dorks like me really know what happened, right? So billions of dollars of tariffs, very disruptive and really bad for the relationship between the U.S. Yeah. and China. Yeah. Really bad. So the president now is being told by his advisors, we really want to bring China back to the table. We were, we were super close to having an agreement that was going to export just hundreds of billions, like, like a quarter of a trillion dollars worth of American agriculture to China and all the good stuff, pork, wheat, sorghum. I mean, it was going to be awesome. Good for American shipping, good for China. And China was going to buy all this stuff and then we were going to open up the American financial markets. We were going to start to build natural gas terminals to export natural gas instead of the Russians. Boy, wouldn't that have been really useful right now? Like, you know, like, like you know, there's all this great stuff that was going to come from it, you know? Oh, um, man. I... <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? So, and, and so they're saying to him, here's what we need you to do. Maybe you just drop a couple of these levels, just four of them, so maybe like list one and two. And so President Biden is saying, yeah, maybe I should do that. And China's like, yeah, great idea. Maybe you should do that. It'd be really good for our relationship. Um, but he's being told by everyone, the worst thing you could do right now is look soft on China. The worst thing you could do right now, while the Chinese are basically propping up the Russian war machine in Ukraine, is make it even easier for them to trade with America. The worst thing you could do right now is give your Republican, you know, our, our conservative party in America, is give them another talking point to make it seem as though you don't have the best interest of American manufacturing at heart. The worst thing, the worst thing, the worst thing. And it becomes not a economic or a logistics conversation. It becomes a political one. So in all of my you know, my many podcasts that I do and all the trade school that I do every week and my conversations work, I try to say, we can't change politics. Lot Chang and Pete Mento have absolutely no voice in Congress. 
And I don't know if you've got the prime minister's phone call, you know, in, in Australia. I don't think you do. Cause if you did, you'd probably call him drunk at two in the morning. I know I would, uh, you know, and, and, and Joe Biden won't return my, my phone calls or emails. So I'm not getting through to anybody, but all we can do is come up with pragmatic solutions to deal with it, buddy. So here's a question then. And this is going to sound a bit broad, but when did America, it sounds like to me, when did America become a country with a scarcity mentality? Okay. Yeah. So um, during the, that there's only enough for, yeah, okay. So the, the attitude, the attitudinal change. 54% of the money on planet Earth is in the hands of the U.S. population, which makes up about 5% of the people walking the Earth. So that's crazy, right? And for the longest time, we were able to drive economic policy through our trade agreements. That changed dramatically when the global economy became truly global. And that really started in the late 90s when the internet began to interconnect markets. And when the internet began to interconnect markets, transportation companies saw an opportunity to serve these international markets in a more efficient way. A lot of that was led by small package companies who were able to seize on that by interconnecting you know, various nations. And then companies like the ones we work for were able to really efficiently through consolidation bring smaller market companies to the globe. And over the course of the past 20 years, we've gotten so super good at it and so efficient that we were able to take these processes that we had and layer technology on top of it. Well, if you and I wanted to right now, you and I could go out and we could buy an operating system from any number of companies, cargo-wise, right? You name it. And we, we could put some money. Well, cargo-wise is Australian. They're damn good. Uh, and, and we could, we could, you know, we could buy, we could buy a system. And me from America and you from Australia, we know any number of people in Asia, we could start a freight forwarding company tomorrow. I could take my custom sales brokerage license on the wall right there. We could start importing into America. And you could call somebody over in China and we could start importing into China. We could be a global freight forwarder in a couple of days, hmm. right? We have moved from the complexity of freight forwarding being this massive, you know, paper chase and bureaucracy and labor intensive and capital intensive too. It's gotten so good from a process standpoint that we can buy off the shelf software to digitize it for us like that. And if you have a couple of good relationships and a couple of phone numbers, bud, you can get it started. Here's the rub. America for a long time, we had the world cornered on consumption and we had the world cornered on infrastructure. And we fell asleep at the wheel when China built better infrastructure and began to encourage consumption. We fell asleep at the wheel when Europe began to build better infrastructure for trade agreements and began to evangelize around the world that they wanted to find ways to work with people to build better infrastructure. And we never, ever thought that people would trust China to be a good partner for trade. And they did. And China came through with their promises for a lot of people. And then we took our partners for granted. We took Canada for granted. 
We took Mexico for granted. We really took Europe for granted. When the Soviet Union fell, we did not build a better relationship with that part of the world when we could have. We could have turned India into the most important manufacturing and technological and technologically innovative economy on the planet. But instead of investing in that and investing in their infrastructure, we invested in them financially through, through corporations, which was great, but we didn't invest in them as a government to help them build port infrastructure, to help them build the infrastructure through their highways, which we could have done in the early 90s and radically changed that country. We're starting to do it now. We should be ashamed of ourselves for what we didn't take the chance to do then. And now we find ourselves behind, way behind China, who's been through their Belt and Road Initiative, basically yeah. colonializing the world, which is what they've been doing. Now, we're America. We did that for a couple hundred years. So, but you know, uh, you know, you, you can look at where that is now. And we find ourselves on the back foot where we have no merchant marine. Asia has it all. I mean, I don't negotiate. When I'm negotiating for all the space right now, I'm not negotiating with any American companies. I'm negotiating with Taiwanese, Chinese, Korean, and European companies for the most part, buddy. And so are you. It's, 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 we are infrastructureless. All we have is consumers and banks, bud. Consumers and banks. So he's going to be a, a, a big question to sort of tackle. So we, so we all know the effect of COVID that's had to the supply chain, right? Um, we're not going to cover that. I'm, I'm, I'm sure both you and I, we've done so much content on that. We will know how what has happened and transpired in the last two years. Right now, there's this massive um, camps, divisive camps between, you know, talking about the the after effect or the hangover from the COVID highs or the COVID um, 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 drunkenness. And which is causing market chaos right now, right? Be it Main Street or Wall Street. Um, even the experts at the central banks, let's face it, not all of them have done things correctly. And to be fair, not many of them actually had to grapple with this type of challenges before. So in the midst of this economic um, um, reality that we're currently facing, and then with the continuing push by us of you know with the situation in ukraine and russia with the the fighting stance with china let's let's put i mean let's call that for what it is i mean fighting stance. do you see all of this as just a massive coincidence or do you see there to be any sort of interaction or connection or or, um, or, um, um, you well, I, you know, I, I don't think that there's any intent, you know, for where we are today. I think that um, I, I don't, I don't want to believe that the world is that awful. Um, mm. You know, my 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 uh, my my stance on this has always been the same. You know, the the world is chaos, and here we are in the middle of all of it trying to make sense of it. And for anyone to, to orchestrate something so horrific as where we are now, it would take a whole lot more work than I think anyone could be capable of. And just the, the way that things just keep falling apart whenever we think that we're just so close. I, I, was, I was feeling so damn good, Law. You know, I, I was, 
I was like, I was getting so excited, you know, because the, the, I was feeling like the West coast port strike really, you know, it's, it's probably not going to happen and, it, and it's still looking pretty good. Right. You know, and, and, um, and uh, oil prices are starting to get pretty good, you know, and then oh, COVID shutdowns in China. What are you talking about? I'm like, Shanghai, no, like the ports are shutting down and no one's going to work. You got to be kidding me. Right. And I'm thinking that's going to turn everything off. Consumption is going to be off in China. That's going to cause a recession. And then Russia invades Ukraine. And then I'm like, don't, and then I said, don't sanction, don't, don't sanction Russia. Don't do it. Don't do it. I know everyone's going to feel good about it, but in doing so, you're going to artificially ruin the oil market and you're going to jack up gas prices everywhere. I know you're trying to do something good here, but in reality, it's going to backfire. You're only going to help the Russian warm it. Like, don't do it. You know, and now we're talking about this artificial price level that we're going to do where everyone's going to promise we're not going to sell buy oil at a higher price than this. No, all that's going to do is make oil expensive everywhere else but in china so they're going to buy china and india are going to buy oil at a lower price when they're still going to buy it from russia like people don't seem to understand right i was so hopeful for everything and it just it just keeps the next thing just keeps happening man it keeps happening it's just a constant the way i see it it's just a constant pattern by the powers they be, or we call our leaders, that it's a constant knee-jerk. I mean, look, we are also part of the system. It's a constant knee-jerk and reaction, reactionary type of steps that we take that keeps on getting us into trouble, right? So we see ourselves in a state of fishtailing, right? Swinging from one extreme to another, whilst every major uh, economy or market or leader, whatever, they're trying to finesse it so the fishtailing stops and we don't go jackknifing the whole thing but it just keeps on fading like you said every single step that us have taken against the russia conflict with the sanctions um, um, um with the um uh, taking them off swift and all of that um, um and, and as well as keeping their money which you know keeping their central bank money which is i guess it's the cardinal rule of you don't do sort of thing that sense a very powerful message for the very wrong reasons to the rest of the world, be it ally or foe. <laughs> right? yeah. So, I mean, I guess it's one of those things is, is anyone thinking about this sort of stuff? Or are they just simply knee jerking to everything that's happened? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, hey, here's, here's, here's another, another way to look at it. I don't know how many politicians you've met, but, uh, the ones I've met can't even order lunch together in less than an hour of arguing. So the idea that they all get together and they can find some way to, you know, to, to coordinate all this stuff just seems incredibly unlikely to me, but, and, uh, you know, the, we live in a time of such extremes and such overpoweringly dark and difficult and impactful and, and awful things happening around us. I think that, the ship is, is is in such difficult waters. There's going to be overcorrections. What what I what I am, what, what you know, with the place that I'm at is I'm in. I've never felt more incredibly fortunate to be American, and and my and my American friends are doing nothing now but complain. You know, I'm I'm super lucky. I was a merchant marine officer, as you know. I I got to travel on ships, and then being in our business, 
we've traveled so much, man. You know, you and I are friends in this business. I got four kids, right? I've got my daughter and then the woman I love. I'm in Marion finally. She's got three of her own. I've raised them like my own. I love the hell out of them. And they haven't gone anywhere. They haven't seen a damn thing. And they think that the rest of the world must be better than here because they don't know any better, right? Well, I've been everywhere. I love this country. Um, and you, I got to see, you know, people like you and friends of mine who were stuck in, in Australia and couldn't go anywhere. And right now, one of my dearest friends who um, was living in Europe, uh, who's from India, her, her son lives in Bondi Beach. And this is the first time in two years that she's seen her son, man. Yeah. Two years, yeah. you know? Yeah. I could not go two years without seeing my kids. Yeah. I, it would break my heart. Yeah. You know? So I, I, I think about what, what that must have been like for everyone there and how, how heartbreaking it was. And, uh, you know, never made me be happier to be an American than, than that. And I can't imagine the suffering and how difficult that must have been. And, uh, it's, it's, it's going to change how we look at everything. The, what happened at COVID, when you say in the post-COVID world, it's going to change how we look at finance. It's going to change how we look at logistics. It's going to change how we look at everything, purchasing, our way of life, how we, we look at the, the resiliency of our supply chains, how we look at everything is going to change beyond what's happened there. So mm -hmm. I'm, I'm glad I'm at the end of my career and I'm not going to have to solve all those problems because I'm not smart enough and I don't think I could stay sober enough to come to a conclusion on it. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad that younger guys like you will be handling it, not older guys like me. <laughs> okay, well, let's, let's get to some uh, pretty straightforward business. So for US, in the, in the space of the next six months, or for the rest of the year, let's face, um, what do you see as the, the market conditions to be? What do you think um, of the strikes? That's yeah. um, you know, yeah. What's going to happen? Oh yeah, in man. The US of A. Yeah, here, here comes the lightning round. So uh, <laughs> I don't believe there's going to be a strike. I think we're going to be. We're probably going to avoid this. So we'll, we'll we'll roll the tape back here and see if I'm right. But there's so much. There's so much pressure politically from from both sides of our political spectrum, right? So from liberals and the conservatives and the White House to say this is this would be a knife in the heart of the global economy, not just the American economy, that they're under a lot of pressure not to do it. So that's first. Um, I think that you're going to see continued downward pressure on ocean rates, particularly to the West Coast of the U.S., because people still, as much as they want to believe there's not going to be a break, people are like, eh, eh, you know? So you know, you're seeing stuff in the spot market today is what? Today's the 30th of June when we're recording yeah. this. You're still seeing you know, spot market rates into the West Coast, like $6,300, $6,200, you know, Chinese base ports into Long Beach. And you might see those come down even farther. Um, you know, beyond that, generally, those are forwarders who are seeing one carrier rate. I don't know how reliable that capacity is going to be once people begin to get, and it's like a two-week rate too as well. So we'll see what comes up with that. Uh, I think as the capacity begins to get a little more comfortable with what's going to happen with that strike, it's going to tick up a little bit. But what I'm really excited for is some kind of comfort where people are going to say, right, no pork strike. I think this is about where we think energy prices are going to be for a little while. 
I think that we believe that we're either in a recession or the recession is coming. So we know how the Fed's going to react, the Federal Reserve Bank in America. Mm-hmm. These interest rates are probably going to be. And you're going to see some stability in rates. You're going to see, you know, seven thousand dollars to sixty three hundred somewhere floating in there for west coast you're going to see that that 75 to nine thousand on the east coast floating in there but it's going to be something that we can characterize as this is about what we think things are going to be you're going to see dray rates um in europe and in the united states be something that's a little more realistic you're not going to see this pile and pile of empties in the u.s that just don't go anywhere you know they're going to send loaders to get them and bring them back what i do think you're going to see a lot of is uh, cancel sailings. And I think you're going to see a lot of blank sailings because these ocean carriers have really gotten used to making great profits. And they're, um, they're shareholders. They're not ready to give that up yet. So yeah. I think that no matter what happens, 23, 24, that stability will remain. And they're going to try to keep, I don't think we're ever going to go back for, not ever. It's going to be a while before we're going to go back to the reasonable rates that we're used to because these carriers are going to work to maintain ranks, to keep rates at a level that their shareholders and their families and themselves feel is reasonable. But you and I both know, man, it's just going to take one carrier, one of these major carriers to say, uh, you know, I, uh, I, I got a, I got a shot here. I could, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at these guys, and I, I could, I could probably take this whole lane. Like, like I could probably, I could probably corner the market on Turkey. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, let's do it. And like, you know, they, they drop the rates by two thousand dollars, and then it all falls apart. So it just takes one carrier to wreck it, and yeah. someone's gonna get greedy eventually. And yeah. you know, I, I, I joke all the time. Freight forwarders, logistics providers, we are an opportunistic bunch and we are greedy. And we like to make money and sooner or later, someone's going to break rakes. That's just a question of when. Uh, yeah. So we'll wait around for it. And when that happens, man, all bets are off. It'll be the Wild West again and it'll be fun working in this business again. Um, the other side of that though, man, I think I think air freight's going to suck for a long time. I think it's going to yeah. suck for a while. A long, long time. There's no pilots. There's no space. There's no aircraft. This war screwing everything up. Jet fuel so expensive. I'm so glad I don't have to deal in that marketplace. I mean, it's got to suck for you right now. Air freight's got to yeah. be awful. Well, right now down down under is, and also New Zealand, we're having a massive demand for air capacity and charter flights for the milk powder sending over to the U.S. Mm. So you know yeah, that's so, awful. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of demand on capacity, which there isn't any, you know, and people go, oh, how, why, why aren't there any more options? And I say, dude, New Zealand's a small country. Right? <laughs> what, what, do you, what do you want from me, right? Like, you want me to go in my backyard and build you one? I don't, I don't have anything, you know? It's, it's not, it's, it's really, it's a, it's a supply situation. It's a capacity yeah. problem. I can't get you anything else. So people just don't get it. I've never understood it. Yeah. So, inflation, recession, stagflation. Um, what? I mean, which camp are you in, and how far away or how long away do you see your beliefs to come to fruition? I think I think that we're going to find out, right? Because you don't know if you're in a recession until you see the numbers. I think we're going to find out that we're already in one. Uh, I think that the recession will be a relatively short one, probably twelve months. 
And uh, I think that the U.S. government, from our end at least, is going to do everything that they can in their power to jam us into it quick as they can so that we can get out of it as fast as we can. And it's unfortunate because that requires us encouraging unemployment. It requires us encouraging people not buying homes. You know, it, it's sort of like shocking someone's system into having a heart attack to reset the rate of their heart. And that's sort of where we are. So uh, I think it's going to be brutal. And how is the American public responding to that? And we're oblivious. You know, that's, that's the thing most people don't understand is that most Americans don't pay attention to any of this. They, they just, they're all happy to be making, you know, more money than ever before, but they don't realize it buys less than it ever has. So, you know, they're all excited to be like, oh, look at all the money I'm making, you know, flipping burgers at Dairy Queen. But then they, they complain about how much gas is, but they don't realize they're spending 40% more on chicken breasts and milk and, and everything is more expensive and the rent is going up. The rents are so expensive right now and houses are unaffordable. And those are the sorts of things that are not going to come back down once this recession is over with. You know, people are going to get used to making that kind of money on, on housing, on cars. Now, other things in that market basket, like food, of course, will probably come down a bit. Um, but people are going to get used to making those kinds of profits and they're going to expect to make them deep into the future. So, like I said, I think about a year of, of, uh, of the recession, but I think part of this inflation is going to be here to stay, man. What's your view on um, the China COVID zero policy? I hate it. Oh God, I hate it so much. But I think, you know, a big reason for it is this is their way of having something to blame for what is essentially their, their economic problem. So, you know, by, they can say, well, it's, it's not so much market conditions that are caused by political decisions. It's more, or what do you want us to do? We had to deal with COVID. We're a massive country with a lot of people who are on top of each other. The last thing we want to do is a massive loss of life. We do what we had to do to keep everyone safe. Um, it just so happens we also had serious economic pressures that happened to happen at the same time. You know, go ahead and try to prove it was one and not the other. You know, and it's a fair point. You you really can't prove it wasn't one or the other. So, uh, masterstroke. Well done. Mr. Ping, you know, so, you know, yeah, tip of the hat to him, you know, uh, hate, hate the game, don't hate the player. He won that round. So, uh, you know, you got to give him credit. Well, thank you so much, Pete. And um, I, and I know on some of the topics we, we, we just barely touched on and, and we're tackling massive icebergs here and there's so much, so much conversation to be had, but really, really enjoyed what we did have. Um, and appreciate your time very much. Oh, come on anytime. You just let me know when you want to do it, buddy. Will do. Thank you, Pete. Anytime, pal. See ya. Cheers, mate. Take care. Right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Need help with your next shipment? Feel free to visit our website at www.tgl.co to book an obligation-free consultation. You can also check out the video for this episode on our YouTube channel. And while you're at it, add us on Instagram at tgl underscore global or LinkedIn and Facebook by searching Think Global Logistics. Thank you for listening. Thank you.